0: Hello, and welcome back to the Joe's Art History Podcast, a podcast which celebrates all things art historical every single day. My name is Joe McLaughlin, I'm your host and your resident art historian, and it's so lovely to be back and bringing you another season of the Joe's Art History Podcast. Before we kick off, I just want to say thank you so much to everybody who has listened to the podcast so far and who has actively got involved in, over social media or emailing me to tell me how much you're enjoying the podcast and also a couple of people that have written in to give me episode recommendations but it's always so lovely to hear from you, thank you so much and yeah like I said I'm excited to be back and bringing you a brand new season of the Joe's Art History podcast. So what better way to kick off season two I thought than bringing you the follow-up to Probably one of my most requested and engaged episodes. This is Famous Art Cameos in Movies Part 2. Now you may or may not remember I have done a Famous Art Cameos in Movies Part 1 which was released oh my goodness about January of 2020 so it's episode 16 so if you haven't listened to that please feel free to go back and listen to this but you don't have to listen to it in order to sort of follow on what we're going to do today but it's the same principle that applies my sister and fellow illustrator and artist Nicole McLaughlin aka Nico Paws is back in the podcasting seat with me this week and we discuss three artworks each which appear or have famous cameos in movies which i'm more than definitely sure you will have heard of you might not have seen them but you've definitely heard of them just to be perfectly transparent with everybody this is actually the second take of this episode as we had a little bit of a recording disaster i have absolutely no idea what's happened we were about 45 minutes into recording this and my internet completely died and then my phone died and then those two things together meant that my recording is lost somewhere in the world and I don't know where it is as much if we tried to recover it so we've had to record this again. But the slight hiccup of losing our first take, we are more than happy to record this episode again and actually I feel like I gave us more to say because we've done it before and it would given us time to sort of go away and think about it and again even editing when I was doing this there were so many different things that I thought about that we could do and say about the pieces now because of that the episode it was nearly two hours long and I just thought it's not fair to, to ask somebody to sit and listen to something for, for that length of time so I've tried my best to split it as fairly as possible into two parts so this is only part one that you're listening to and part two will be released on exactly the same day straight after this so sit back and relax for the first installment of part two of famous art cameos in the movies. Enjoy. Okay, Nicole, so you're
1: going you're gonna to kick us off yeah. with famous art cameo number one. Wait, I had a list of various paintings and there was one that, it's not actually the point I'm going to talk about, but I do want to kind of mention it because I find it really interesting when films do this. Um, and it's um, Bram Stoker's Dracula. And there's a scene where Dracula's at this big, long table, who's Gary Oldman, and there's a portrait behind him of, like, a young Gary Oldman. Um, and when I was looking up, up, um, obviously I knew it was Gary Oldman, but it's actually based on a self... And the piece is actually called Self-Portrait, and it's by Dürer Munich. And I always just found it really interesting that... I, and it's the same with, like, Frozen, how they copy a famous painting and mm. they, I guess, implement a character or they change it so that it fits with the narrative of the film. I just find that really interesting. So I just wanted to throw that in. Um, but the actual piece I'm going to discuss was in V for Vendetta, which is a film action thriller that was released in 2005 based off a comic of a dystopian political future Um, It's very dark, basic, Guy Fawkes, you recognise the mask, Um, Anonymous, which is like an an internet organisation, use that as like their logo. So it's a very iconic uh, visuals. But the painting I'm going to discuss is Puberty by Norwegian artist, Edward Munch, which was painted between 1984 to 85. I really love when you see a painting in a film, and obviously you maybe don't connect why they've used that painting. But then obviously because I've done research, I can now understand why they've placed this painting in this particular scene. Mm. So in the scene, Evie, who's Natalie Portman, um, is speaking with V, which is the Guy Fawkes character. So he's like the main male um, while they're in his lair. Um, and his walls are just completely covered in like fine art. Um, and I, I think... I feel like they've used it to kind of emphasise how naive Natalie Portman's character is at the time when she meets V. It's interesting as well because almost kind of like, a ch- not a child going through puberty, but when I go into the piece, you will understand what I mean, but almost kind of like Natalie Portman goes through puberty in this film and becomes, this like, so she starts off quite naive and then grows through experiences throughout the film into this really strong, dominant female. Um, mm. So I feel... I I think this is why they've possibly used this piece, but I'll now go into the painting. So, Puberty was a part of a series and it was painted towards the end of that series. It took place um, within the late 1800s or 1880s, sorry, um, to the middle of the 1890s. I've read that the series was called Puberty, but Mm -hmm. when I've looked it up, I can't actually see other pieces that are kind of on par with this painting. But there is a series that he did that is The three Years of Life, which was a series that looked at life, death, and love, basically kind of okay. every human experience that took like that anyone ever experiences. But I can't find if puberty takes place in this series. But obviously puberty is something that you do go through. Yeah. So the painting depicts a young female, and I mean that like she looks 13, 14. Um, she's sitting nude on a bed and is almost kind of covering herself with like as best as she can with her arms. So she's kind of got her arms kind of pressed up against her body and she's got her arms covering herself and kind of wedged mm-hmm. in between her legs. Like she just really looks squished and kind of to emphasize how nonsensual this piece is meant to be and almost how scared she is, is it like within this scenario she stares directly at us, which is like, you've said it before, like it's quite uncommon that paintings have people staring directly at the yeah. Um, And the way that she's lit has this shadow that kind of curves round her almost, kind of like is sitting on her. And it isn't, it doesn't look like her body shape, but the painting just shows how young, I think it just really emphasises how young she is um, and how scared she is. For being like kind of awakened with womanhood and also with what kind of situation that she's in, because you can't really tell. Um, I get well, you probably have assumptions, but it's said that people don't actually really understand like the meaning behind the piece. So there are different theories, and it's all to do with like the shadow. So the theories are it's her, it's a male. And people also think it's to represent genitalia. So some people see a penis, and some people also see a vagina.
0: But where are we seeing that? Like this is what I don't understand. Like because all I can see is is this young girl sitting on a bed, and then there's that. Oh, the harsh shadow the, on the wall. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. That... Yeah, the hard shadow on the wall. So people see it as a penis or a vagina or her or a male.
0: That is that is mad. I do not see that. Do you see that? What do you see? <laughs>
1: I thought it was well I'll go into what I think it is because it to me it kind of I I don't know if I'm maybe thinking of maybe a bit more symbolic but I just feel as if it's like a shadowy creature just because the way it sits beside her Mm -hmm. on the bed and the way she's lit like you can see with like the detail of like her collarbone the shadow wouldn't sit like that it would still be kind of still behind her. So I feel as if Mm -hmm. this is maybe meant to be the kind of darkness of sexuality kind of entering our soul because Mook actually grew up in a really strict religious household. So a lot of his work has like undertones of sexual frustration and guilt to do with like his kind of sexual experience. Or lack of. Well, he lost his virginity to his cousin's wife, which I read. And apparently he had a lot of guilt over that so that's in a lot of like his pieces and that's from what I time I kind of looked up uh, like his other pieces women seem to always kind of be nude in them okay uh, I mean I, I really do I really don't know very much about
0: Monk actually like I think the only sort of um link that I can that I can sort of provide people is that he was a huge and and continues to be a huge inspiration to Tracy Emin because Monk like you said he dealt a lot with sort of mental health mm. and um catholic guilt if you will yeah. um because uh for those of you who haven't been raised catholic and those of you that have that have been listening to this for like eight minutes oh, that, no pun intended <laughs> um catholic guilt is a huge thing where it doesn't matter what you do you've not done it right or oh, you've not done it you're a ter- Oh, you're a terrible person and you're going to go to the big fire. But it's so funny that you say you think this shadow is like a creature because when I saw it, I thought it was maybe like a study of the back of her head for some reason. And that because it reminds me of, do you know the grudge? Yeah. Is it the grudge? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No. Uh, It's the grudge, the ghetto. Oh, no. You're thinking of the ring? The ring, that's it. I was like, there's another movie with a weird creepy girl in it.
1: You know, the ring where (laughs) she's in the well. Yeah, that's the ring. Okay, the grudge also has creepy children, but either way, creepy children.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's just interesting. It's an interesting? So this is, and this is
1: just like, does he, does V present? No, so... That's what... No, so it's um, in his lair. So because it's like a dystopian future, obviously art is kind of forbidden. Um, So he has confiscated and stole all this fine art and obviously like discusses how it's like a complete crime that people can't see this stuff so it's implied that he has the original um so it's just kind of sitting on almost like a canvas stand and she's standing in front of it kind of shyly I've got the picture of it from from the easel thank you um What a pandemic canvas <laughs> done, you're an artist. <laughs> <Campus>. I... <laughs> it is happy and night, <laughs> and I've been cleaning all day. Oh my god, it's the fumes. I am so rubbish at the English language, <laughs> <laughs> it's resting on an easel. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it's resting on an easel, and she's standing in front of it. Kind of, um, you can kind of see she looks a bit shy, but I've got pictures of it in scene, so you can kind of see what I mean. Um, mm. but yeah, um, other things I I think I'd said was obviously the piece is quite controversial because it is it's depicting a minor nude, and kind of those scenarios time when it came to like John nudes, was they were prostitutes, um, mm. but the I guess no one really knows who the model was, but some people believe that the girl is similar to his sister, which is big yikes <laughs> Yeah. Which is which is a no a new one. <laughs> Sweet Home Alabama. <laughs> um but yeah, so I think I'd said it before but what I do find it interesting though is obviously because it is a minor, um it seems to be on obviously the way he paints it, there's just nothing sensual about this piece, which is usually when you see kind of nudes and paintings. So it's almost like he is trying to emphasize how uncomfortable and how sad this situation is for this young girl. Mm. Which I've, I, I've, I, I'm quite shocked. You don't like Munich? Um, did the scream? If anyone is that kind of grotesque kind of form type stuff. He was, yeah, as you would said, very much about the emotion portrayed in his work so it, it comes off really well. Um but the biggest controversy that I found was that it is believed that he copied this from another artist called Felician Rops, um, who was okay. a Belgian artist. That artist <laughs> had a similar place called The Greatest Love of Don One. So it also has a young girl sitting quite rigid, but this time there's actually a man looming behind her. So the shadow is and literally you see like the silhouette of a man. You can see kind of like, is it a tailcoat suit? Is that what it was called back then? Do you know the kind of like with cape, the dramatic suits that they would wear back in the eighteen hundred, eighteen eighties? 1880s? Yeah, the top, top and tail. That's it, sort top of... and tail. So, he's, so the shadow is very much him. But then you can see like a break of white, which would be like the white shirt. And then you can kind of see his face and he's got like a hat. So a lot of his work was quite shocking. Because obviously I then looked into this this guy's work um so a lot of his stuff was very like shocking kind of promiscuous stuff a lot of etchings just very much black and white work drew i cannot believe how many penises this man drew i've never seen drawn penises in my life um <laughs> i was just like fair play it's normally always women so it was it was quite you know refreshing in a weird way but insisted that it was his own original piece as the first one was lost in a fire and the one that we now know is a recreation of the piece that was lost and that is puberty by edward Monk.
0: well thank you very much for that it's such an interesting piece you know like "Viva vendetta it's one of these movies i think i saw it once when i was maybe like 13, 14, because I heard it was like really edgy and new age and it would like make you question the government and I just I don't know, it just went over my head a little bit I think at that age. I really
1: liked it but I think Um, back then I was like super edgy so I was just like yeah screw the establishment man like that kind of vibe.
0: Yeah, I think I'm going to need to watch it again actually. I I think it's particularly interesting that that art has been banned and and that it's, you know, the, the context of Art is obviously seen as a threat, as a way of like educating people and uh, and sort of inspiring people to, to have new ideas and connections. And it's seen so much as a threat that in this make-believe world, it's banned. So I think that's also quite an interesting contrast and in how today it's not really that that importance isn't, isn't really placed on it. And so, you know, it's not really seen as a threat. It's more of this sort of elitist thing. So how funny that it's been flipped in that narrative because art is very important. Mm. Anyway, something to consider while you're listening. I'm going to um speak about something very different. And we're going to we're going to kick it up to a little sort of a romance number and we're going to talk about an incredible Marc Chagall painting um which was actually one of my friends who wrote me and was like I cannot believe this wasn't you didn't mention this. You love this movie and I was like oh yeah. I, I'll be very honest I completely forgot. And we are going to be talking about La Marie, which is by um, Russian painter called Marc Chagall. Everyone have well
1: heard of <laughs> Chagall,
0: and it appears in the very, very, very iconic Notting Hill.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's really interesting because the painting it appears twice throughout the whole thing, and once as a poster, and then once as the actual painting itself. And it sort of links the two characters together. And it's just this very sort of subtle mention both times of the painting and it stands for sort of their relationship and their love and their, I don't know, sort of trying to sort of trudge their way through the sort of murky waters that is finding your person and, you know, laying your soul bare. And I think it's a really beautiful painting. So, like I said, it's by uh, the Russia, uh, Russian artist called Marc Chagall. Well, he's actually Russian-French, and so he was born in Russia, but he uh, later he lived in France for most of his life. He he kind of lived a little bit everywhere actually, which is quite an incredible story. Um, and he was granted French citizenship, I think, in the 1930s. Uh, and I don't know why. Maybe that's why. I've always assumed he was he was French. Um, also, he uses these incredibly vivid blues in his work. Everything's very sort of dreamlike. And La, uh, La Marie is French for the bride. And it was painted in 1950. It's an oil on canvas. So it's a real-life painting. It wasn't made up for Notting Hill. And it's actually in a private collection in Japan. Now, the painting was included in Notting Hill because... screenwriter Richard Curtis who is also famous for um, such amazing movies like Love Actually and um, Four Weddings and a Funeral as well as a whole host of other things he really loves Chagall's work and he chose La Marie in particular because and I quote it depicts a yearning for something that is lost so just I'll just describe the painting to you a little bit it's this incredible very sort of eye-catching bright. She's in a red dress. She's got this incredibly sort of virginal white veil and she's kind of sort of floating through this very sort of weird dreamlike town. There's a goat playing a violin. There's someone playing a trumpet. There's a fish in the background that appears to be playing some sort of an um, instrument who knows there's a church in the background of course um and, and then you can see sort of a suggestion of a town and then there is a gentleman who seems to be sort of unveiling the bride but again she's looking out sort of directly at the canvas and she, he uses this that's just incredible color palette and it's so beautiful but it's and you're probably listening thinking that sounds bonkers and that's because it is bonkers. It's very, very odd. It's very surreal, but it's, it's really interesting because Marc Chagall really didn't like to fall into categories within his work. He didn't want to be a surrealist or a Dadaist or post-impressionist or a, um, fall into the category of Fauvism. He didn't want to be pigeonholed, if you will. And I think I really respect Chagall for that. I mean, he had a very long and successful career, as I said previously, born in Russia, he lived in France for the majority of, of his life. He, uh, you know, in 1915, he returned to Russia at a young age, and came back to Paris once it was safe af- after World War. He then, on the rise of sort of Nazis in Europe, he was he was also Jewish. It wasn't safe for him. So, uh, at the sort of at the breaking of World War II. He then, him and his family were offered refuge in America by um, this American gentleman called Varian Fry, who worked for the Museum of Modern Art in New York. He was offered refuge and safe passage to New York. So in 1941 they arrived and essentially the the day they arrived in New York was the day the Nazis invaded Mm. France. So very interesting. So he lived in America for a little while, and he was incredibly famous at this time as well, which is which is incredible. And, and by the late forties, he was having retrospectives in America and in Britain and across Europe. And his he actually lost quite a lot of work during the Nazis sort of uprising. So in 1933, he had a whole load of work burned by the Nazis. And then in 1937, it was declared that his work should be removed from all German museums. And uh, some of his work was, were actually shown in 1937 in this very, very famous degenerate art exhibition, where essentially the Nazis got all these what we now consider to be incredible artists. And they were contemporary artists at the time. It'd be kind of like people rounding up Damien Hirst's work just to sort of, boo it if you will and this is essentially what the nazis did they put on this big exhibition so people could go and view what art should not be according to the nazis so very very weird. interesting anyway i know very really really weird but this it's this huge huge exhibition that happened and i would say if you haven't heard of it go and give it a google it will take you down this bonkers rabbit hole or maybe i'll do an episode about it if you would like if you I want would. to know more <laughs> what i thank you <laughs> What I love about Chagall is also he, like I said previously, he didn't really pigeonhole himself as an artist. And he lived a very, very long life. You know, he he lived well until his 90s. And he was he made incredible stained glass as well. And he didn't really turn to that until later in his life. I think he was about 60 or 70. But when he turned to sort of looking and, and making stained glass, you can find examples of that in uh, the United Nations building in new york the rockefeller center i'm sure have a piece as well um the art institute in chicago and there's also this incredibly beautiful church in mines called st stephens which i've had the privilege of going to and you just feel like you're underwater it's you're just sort of floating in this sort of blue chapel and regardless of what religion you are it's just it's really like having an outer body experience it's beautiful a uh, fun fact about mines is also where Johannes Gutenberg was born and he was the inventor of the printing press. You know, just by the time this comes out, pub quizzes should be <laughs> resuming. So we're just making sure. But anyway, I'm going to play the clip, the first clip and then the second time. The first clip that the, the, the work appears, it's just, oh, these scenes are just so quick as you'll hear, but really just, oh, they're beautiful. So here we go. I can't believe you have that picture. You like Chagall?
1: I do. It feels like how love should be, floating through a dark blue sky. With a goat, playing a violin. Well, yes. Happiness isn't happiness without a violin playing goat.
0: I just love that scene so much. And then it appears one more time right at the end. So this is after... Anna Scott, who is Julia Roberts' character. Um, They've had... And uh, Hugh Grant's character is called William Thacker. And they've had a really big sort of to and fro the whole way through the movie. So will, they won't, they get together. She's this incredible movie star, for those of you that haven't seen it. And if you haven't seen it, you have to go watch this movie. It's an hour and a half long, and it's just beautiful. And right at the end, after... And has sort of disappeared from his life. She comes back and she offers essentially William like her, her love and it's that very iconic line, I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her and oh gosh, so good and he says no and he's got this, this brilliant scene right at the end where she's given him a gift after he said no and he's not opened it and uh, they're all in a friend's restaurant talking about him turning her down, so this is what happens.
1: Tones, what do you reckon? Never met her, never want to. Brilliant. Max? Absolutely. Never trust a vegetarian.
0: Great. Thanks. Brilliant.
1: (laughs) I was called my king, what's it?
0: William's just turned down, Elmask.
1: You daft prick. (laughs) No, 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 it's actually quite sensible. Painting isn't the original, is it? Um, I think it might be, yeah. But she said she wanted to go out with you.
0: Yeah. Well, that's nice. I just love this. And and, uh, how... So essentially what happens is Anna has given uh, William Thacker the original Chagall painting as like a symbol of her love for him and it's just this really beautiful callback to i don't know a 15 second meaningless conversation to most but oh it's just beautiful so and and obviously it's implying that she owned the original and and that's why she was like oh i can't believe you own that yeah just kind of like a i don't know like like a sign from the universe or whatever i don't know but it's just It's so so beautiful and I just think it's an incredible an incredible painting and so actually for the movie fun fact they had to get written permission so they didn't use the original but they had to get permission from the owner as I said previously this painting uh, belongs to someone in Japan and he agreed that okay you can make a copy of it absolutely not a problem and Cost a couple of thousand pounds to put a replica, a very good replica, together, and then um, the sort of producers of the film had to sign an agreement to say that they would destroy the painting, the fake painting, after the after the movie had wrapped, essentially, because they didn't, he didn't want it sort of kicking around, and quite rightly so. Um, but I think it's very interesting because Mark Chagall's estate operates out of. I think I'm sure it's France operates out of and essentially whenever someone wants a Marc Chagall to be authenticated because not everything um, was kept track of and what's interesting with Chagall's work if you want to get if you think you found a Chagall and you want to get it authenticated you have to physically send it to the estate but you also sign a waiver to say that if they declare that the work is not a Marc Chagall they will burn it and you won't even get the fake back. So there's always this thing of, oh, you, you risk, you know, probably never seeing your painting again if they find it out to be a fake. Which I just find quite interesting and funny that it had to sort of, sort of follow through even to the fake in this movie. Um, But yeah, there you are. That is La
1: Marie from Marc Chagall. I do think crazy that it was... I guess I understand, obviously, the principle because it's a forgery, but it's a shame because, obviously, the writer loved girl Sig- Sig- so much, and I guess this is possibly, like, the closest thing to the original that he was ever going to own, and the fact... Oh, I doubt that no, Richard wait. Curtis okay, is true, loaded. Because he, he wrote <laughs> you know, many of the iconic British uh, rom-coms of the time. Um, just when you'd said Richard, Richard Curtis, you, like... Like he wrote so much i'm so like shocked at how much he's wrote but yeah true you know what but it's, it's crazy though yeah
0: yeah yeah and and but i think it's beautiful because when i think of i don't know because he also wrote things like love actually yeah. and bridget jones as well and i don't i don't think there's any art in that but there is one thing that he co-wrote and I, I I don't know if he wrote the movie for it, but he it Yeah, one I just i like to a that talk about it. later. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but um, we will swiftly move on. Okay,
1: Nicole. So, what is your painting number? So my next two? painting is one of my. It's from one of my favorite Disney princess movies, um, which you actually pointed out to me to do um, because I never realised it was a real painting um but it turns out it was um so the movie is the little mermaid um and this is not only as i said before it's like my favorite film it, like made me obsessed with mermaids it very much made me have red hair um but it's the beginning of the disney renaissance and it's what actually saved disney from bankruptcy fun fact Um, And the painting is The Magdalene with the Smoking Flame. Mm. Yes, thank you. Honestly, thank you so much for showing me because I would have never have caught uh, that this was a real painting just because it's an animation, even though, just kind of like with Frozen. I keep bringing it back to Frozen, you know, iconic. But like how they, I guess maybe the same thing, kind of took a painting and put a twist on it just for maybe safety I don't know maybe why they did it but yeah um this pretty much is like the spot-on painting which is quite interesting when you kind of read like look at the subject matter so um you see the painting in Ariel's grotto and when she's singing part of your world um it's when she sings the line what's a fire and why does it what's the word burn she touches the flame so it's that painting um That she refers to. Um, So, as I said, it's Magdalene with the Smoking Flame, painted by Georges de la Tour. Um, And it was painted in 1640. And I got the pronunciation right first time. Yes, you did. Well done. (laughs) No, exactly. No editing needed. There we are. And I have to play Google Translate, which you told me that fun fact. And then I hear it, and then I have to say it probably like five times because I always mess it up. But one take, baby. Um, <laughs> so this piece shows a young woman sitting in quite a dark room, um, but it's lit by a single candle, which she's staring directly into, and she's holding a skull on her lap. I'd said it with the v for Vendetta piece, like when you learn about the painting, you completely understand why they've used... The piece, um, it, it reflects it in different ways and has nice little meanings behind it, which I think is quite nice, um, I guess, to include it in this film. So, the painting has two meanings. Um, the first one um, maybe ref- kind of hints more to the book rather than the film. Um, the female in the painting is, like, really deep in thought, Um and she's got a skull on her lap. So the symbolism behind this is that she is in deep contemplation of death. Um, or even as uh, death is an illusion. as she's kind of staring into the reflection or, or staring into the candle. Kind of like another world. Oh, um, So like Ariel wants to be a part of the people world. <laughs> and this woman apparently wants to be with the dead world. Um, so the skull's on her lap. Um, which obviously is kind of a representation of death. Um, so, like, if you've not read the book, in the book, it's not all oh, sunshine lollipops like Disney represented it. It's actually really sad, and Ariel actually dies at the end of it because the deal is, if she can't ha- if she can't get the prince to fall in love with her, she'll be turned into sea foam, which essentially just means she'll die. Um, and she's actually unsuccessful. She loses. Kind of the way the little memory goes where Vanessa, i.e. Ursula, kind of hypnotises Eric. This time it isn't Ursula, it's an actual, it's another person that he falls in love with. Um, so she is not successful and by the third sunrise, or I think it's when the full moon hits the water, she turns into sea foam, sea foam. Um, But yeah, so that's that kind of symbolism. But the... The style of this piece is really traditionally Catholic, Catholic Baroque. Um, it has more symbolism, which is heavily religious, rather than metaphorical death and symbolism and kind of hidden meanings. It's very much, when you look at it, it's very much on the nose. You can see it's a very religious piece and uh, painting. Um, so the Magdalene um, was actually a biblical fishing village, which I would say is the nod to... Movie as it takes place in the ocean, um, mm. but visually, the model is meant to represent Mary Magdalene. And who is Mary Magdalene for people that <laughs> like don't? girlfriend? Um, she was a prostitute. That Jesus? She did she bathe him in oil? You always make fun of me for her. I don't really know biblical stories because I hate watching. She washed. She teeth, washed. It, in she washed his feet. With, w- and with dried hair. it with okay, her well, hair. Maybe this is why she's got super long hair. With, yeah, with her hair. With her hair. her hair. With um, her hair. Fact. <laughs> so um, Mary Magdalene is a prostitute that Jesus I guess didn't look upon. Uh, didn't look down upon, is what I mean. Um, and, oh my god, sorry. Mary Magdalene was a prostitute that Jesus didn't look down upon. Um, and then she soon became a follower and you know, obviously Da Vinci Code theory was actually Jesus's lover and, you know, had a baby. But obviously that's uh, Da Vinci Code stuff. That's not legit within this painting. But I just always have to have a like, call back to Da Vinci anytime I do one of these episodes. You know, I love him. Mm. Um, so, um So as I said, so she's sitting and she's looking at a flame. So on this flame on the table is two books. So one is definitely a Bible. There is a cross on the table and there's a rope on the table, which I originally thought was a, no- a noose, but a, it's, a, it's a noose, similar yeah. to the rope that's tied around her dress, like the bottom half of her dress to, or the skirt, I guess. Um, so mm. I, didn't, I don't know what that rope means, but apparently it's similar to the one on her waist. And then the skull on her lap um that I'd mentioned before, which was the kind of symbolism of a well, death as an illusion, It's actually meant to represent the death of Christ, mm.
0: Well, that makes sense to me because there's obviously mm-hmm. you know there's the wooden crucifix and it is it's important to note that the crucifix that is depicted is wooden. It's a very sort of bare table and of course and you know this time, when when was this painted? yeah, so this is very sort of typical like traditional bare scene um one of those books definitely has to be the bible because books were so expensive and only wealthy people really
1: you're so really mental to think that because what the bible is like what the most owned book in the world now
0: yeah yeah yeah. well i think it's i think it's still the like one of or if not the most sold book year on year
1: um an important is there like symbolism with the wooden cross symbolism for the wooden cross is
0: that jesus was crucified on on a wooden cross and that people were, you know, like saying that, you know, they have splinters from the cross Ah. and things like that, you know, that's, and these have now become like relics, you know, and I think, I think Notre Dame, you see that they have that or the crown of thorns or apparently the crown of thorns and they have a shard of of the cross. Yeah, apparently so. And these are, these are now a, a, a lot of big cathedrals and churches, particularly in Italy. They have all these treasures of, of Christ and or, or saints that that are attributed to being the you know the robe that Saint Francis wore, or the you know the shroud of Turin, for example, is supposed to be the cloth that has you know Christ yeah. when he fell, his face was wiped with, and he left an imprint mm-hmm. of his face on this cloth, which apparently now there's <laughs> so like six of just them like, all over the world. Uh, <laughs> no, it's it's really funny though because um my friend legends. Emma and I, Nicole you know Emma of course, we were in we were in uh, Krakow and we we went into this church to see a stained glass window actually because I was like oh this stained glass window is supposed to be amazing and we went in and there was just this little sign that was literally just like printed and someone had like whacked through a laminator <laughs> and it was the face of Jesus <laughs> and then we went into this room right, so, you know, talk about a big he's like Jesus' like, <laughs> face this way like in sharpie <laughs> Literally. And her and I had no idea what was going on because it was all in Polish, but it was all these people oh my god. kissing this glass with this um <sighs> with this piece of cloth behind it. And her and I were like, What is <gasps> like people like weeping, kissing the kissing this glass. And her and I were like, What the hell is this? So I went up and just sort of had a look at it, and I was like, Oh my god, right, it's just could, you, could you see a it <laughs> It was just you you could see a you could see a blood stain. You could definitely see a blood stain. I mean, I think they're playing fast and loose with with face, but sure. you know, people choose what they want to see. But there okay. there was blood stains. But these relics are really really important to these places. Um, but this is this um no, but they are they're very important. And like going back to the painting, you know, you're talking about uh, you know Mary Magdalene and drawing parallels to the Da Vinci Code, and you've you've talked about the rope that's on the table there. And perhaps that's a tie between one life and the next because, you know, she's holding this skull on on her lap and that's what's known as a memento mori, which was a very common thing to depict in paintings. And it was essentially a reminder to the viewer that you will all end up like this. You one day will be a skull. You will one day be no more. But what I think is very interesting about this painting is how Mm -hmm. the light hits the figure and very much highlights if you will the fact that her stomach is swollen and I think that the rope has also helped mm. us cinch that in so there's a tie there between the living the dead the the soon to be and it's a very very beautiful and interesting painting and a really brilliant example of the things that you can miss if you just quickly browse over something and it's yeah it's so so interesting so I think it's really interesting also to see that if it is a nod to Mary Magdalene then there's also a nod that this perhaps that the painter or or the patron whoever commissioned this painting believed this that there was the body of Christ somewhere you know the son of Christ or daughter of Christ somewhere
1: oh okay Magdalene. I get because even like when so we had obviously we discussed this before and you would mentioned that she was pregnant in this piece, or she looks pregnant because of the way that the light hits her. Mm. And now that I'm actually staring at it, you can yeah. see the bump, which obviously for me, I would have just assumed like mm. back then, kind of Brock paintings use different female form, but the bump is so, like, so precisely where you would see a baby bump that, yeah, of course, it's, it yeah. looks like she's pregnant. Yeah. And she has such long hair. Just see, because you and also a, said she washed, or she washed his hair, or dried it with, with dried his feet with her hair. It's. I can also now see how mm-hmm. far down her hair goes down her back. You it, yeah, it's Yes. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. The
0: whole way to the floor. There's a really very very famous. Um, if you've never heard of it, I would tell you to Google it. There's a very famous wooden sculpture i think it's by donatello and it's in florence and it's mary magdalene because essentially how the story goes is mary magdalene sort of cast out and she she then goes to live in the desert mm-hmm. for the rest of her life and becomes a bit of a hermit and this is an there's it, an incredible wooden sculpture of mary magdalene and she's completely covered in her long long hair and she looks completely disheveled and crazy but this was made in like i think like mm-hmm. the, 1400s 1500s and that's an incredibly powerful sculpture and it was one of the ones that when I saw it in art history when I was in first year I was like (laughs) what the hell is this I have to see it and um, we know when I went when I went to Florence I was like I have to see this I have to see this sculpture but like you said I don't think you've mentioned it here but the
1: the painting is actually there's three in the series So there's three, as Joe said, there's three in the series. Um, so the first as is the one that I've discussed, which is uh, Magdalene with the smoking flame. The second is Magdalene at a mirror or repentant Magdalene. Um, so this has Magdalene in complete darkness, um, apart from her face, and she's it's like her profile, and she's staring once again, and this time she's staring into a mirror, um. You can see the silhouette of the skull, but it's very much like the Bible. So the skull's on top of the Bible on the table and the candle's behind the skull. So you can only see the outline of the skull, but the pro- but some of the mm. skull is reflected in the mirror that Magdalene stayed in- into. And the last one is Magdalene with mm. two flames. So once again, the mirror's the kind of feature in this and it's Magdalene's almost looking over her shoulder um and looking into the reflection of the flame and obviously the candle's kind of in the centre point and it's reflected into this um, mirror and the skull's on her lap again. What I actually really like though is the flame is the focal point in this piece. It's nothing to do, like it's not to do with Magdalene and 100%. even how it's painted, like it's just, it's so... Co- not co- Yeah, I I feel like it's quite cozy, even though there's like a skull in it. Um, I just feel as if it's just quite a peaceful painting, and you kind of just get drawn into the flame, and then you would naturally just kind of look at Magdalene, and then just kind of go, "Oh, I wonder what she's thinking about," and then you look down and see the skull. So it's just this paint. It's so weird how it just takes you on this really ununiformal kind of journey of what you would look at in this painting. Whereas normally when there's a person in a painting, that's the first thing you mm. would look at because we're drawn to think, I guess, similarities. So if we see something that looks like a pair of eyes and a nose and a mouth, we'll naturally look at it. But in this one, it's literally the fire. So we are kind of almost doing the exact same thing that Magdalene does, is which is stare into the flame and contemplate, like, what is this about? Mm, yeah
0: I think that's beautifully put what I what I also love about this and I think it's important to point out if you're comparing the one that we spoke about to begin with and now this one her her setting has changed you know she's that the flame is reflected in this very mm-hmm. beautifully and heavily gilded gold mirror she now has an actual candle on a holder oh, whereas yeah, before it does, it it changes there's pearls that are on the table there's jewelry on the floor then her she's wearing her her shirt properly now it's not sort of sort of falling off her shoulders and the skirt that she's wearing although still red has these beautiful sort of gold and silk suggestive highlights and this to me perhaps it means that this woman has found a partner has has found someone that will take care of her and her child but it's very very obvious in this one that there is a bump and that she is that she is pregnant and that the skull is again placed there as as a reminder that, I don't know, perhaps remind you regardless yeah, of what you want. We're, it all, doesn't
1: we're matter. all made of bones. But,
0: yeah. Well, there's yeah. two things everyone will really. go through birth and death.
1: True. Well, some people, people don't make no it no to that, to Nicole. Talk,
0: that's right. It's such a an interesting series of paintings. And I didn't know anything about the, the series. So thank you. I've really, really enjoyed sort of looking at them with you and and yeah just yeah wondering why but i, th- I do think it's very interesting that there's a sort of link back to a fishing village i do think disney are really
1: clever at that and just to show that they've yeah, always like placed these little easter eggs well and things thought out, nothing's just a fluke like it's it's that uh, and it's such a beautiful nod i guess to art history because any kind of art piece they use there has to be well there is like when I discussed it with the frozen one there is this symbolism behind it and it is very beautiful um also if you want to see this piece it's actually in the Louvre yeah and there's actually two versions of the same piece um so you can find the other one in America um Los Angeles County Museum of Art
0: so there you are. So for my listeners over in America, to the kind of get of art, yeah.
1: And then if, <laughs> get any yourself to listeners, it. go to the Louvre. You look, there we bumps, go. Um, to see this piece, but a hundred percent, if we, when we can travel, because we will be able to travel, hopefully in the near future, hopefully soon. Um, we're a hundred percent going to Paris to see Lisa and go see Magdalene.
0: And there you have it that's the end of part one of famous art cameos in movies essentially i've decided to split this episode into two otherwise it would have been about two hours long so please make sure that you just continue listening and part two will be released straight away and just a quick reminder that all images that we've discussed will be available to view on my Instagram page, on my highlights reel. So if you go onto my Instagram page, that's at Joe's Art History, And if you go to episode 36.1, because this will be part one of episode 36, you will see all the images that we discussed in this episode. If you'd like to get in touch and discuss anything we've heard so far feel free to do so you can email me jozarthistory at gmail.com or you can get in touch via instagram my dms are always open so please don't go anywhere episode 36 part 2 is coming up right now